lose them. T-minus three, two, one, zero, and liftoff. Ho, ho, ho. Welcome to the Big Doc Podcast. And here we are. A little bit of a different week this week. Happy Thursday. Good to see you again. And uh, we've got a variety of things here along with a, we're having a great time uh, speaking to an entrepreneur who's opened a couple different businesses and also made a run at running for Congress, talking about what capitalist entrepreneurs, what we do when we've got the resources and we wanna serve even greater than ourselves. Um, I've missed you, it was a short Memorial Day week. No banks blew up uh, over the weekend, thank goodness. Um, I am here with Kellyanne, the Swiss Army knife. Pulling charts, running clips, and watching the chat all while I talk or I listen because we got a great guest here today. How are you doing, Kellyanne? Really good. I thought you were great on the PVD podcast on Tuesday. Um, they had on Myron from Fresh and Fit. Uh, we're very excited for our SauceCast live event this Friday, tomorrow, with Fresh and Fit uh, here at 5990 Live. Yeah, Fresh and Fit. The Sauce Cast, Adam Sosnick, and Fresh and Fit, right here. We're here at the live studio here where the BizDoc does the BizDoc podcast, but they're going to be here. So get a ticket and be here Friday night. going to be a great time. And as you know, when Adam gets people <laughs> together, anything can happen and be said, and it usually does. <laughs> but um, this is really great. Um, this week, I'm going to tell you, we've got coming up in a few minutes here, we have Antonio Swad, who is the founder of Wingstop and Pizza Patron. And those of you people... I know people all over the place know what that is, especially if you were in Texas or Dallas, where he was based and where these things were born. It was just tremendous. Uh, he, again, he also ran for Congress. We're going to talk to him in a few minutes. That's going to be very exciting. There's a great story with it and a lot of lessons for you and me as we build our business and do things and live life and try to serve upstream against, you know, the, the waves and the forces that are out there today that we're just, we're just trying to do it the right way. Um, and then we'll take a couple couple questions so if you got questions for Antonio please put them in super chat because we're looking forward to that to bring that forward and have a little Q&A at the end of the interview but I want to get into something and I got a bunch of DMs on Twitter BizDoc is the debt deal the debt ceiling deal is it good or is it bad you know what's up with the debt ceiling deal and what's up with the you know free speech on Twitter you know there's a kind of a tale of two cities going on Twitter right now well, first of all, the, the debt ceiling. What happened was they made a deal. And the BizDoc said on the PBD podcast, like a couple times over the three weeks of this debacle, and it's more of a debacle. It wasn't impending nuclear war. It wasn't the Cuban Missile Crisis for the economy. You know, you have to remember, the mainstream media needs to sell ads for soda, blue jeans, cars, whomever. They got to get those people to buy ads, so it has to be relevant. And so Trump versus DeSantis, they're going to amplify that to make it even bigger than it is. And, you know, is Joe Biden, oh, a poll says this, some people think he's told to be president. It's going to be amplified. And then, of course, the debt ceiling, ah, we're all going to die. So <laughs> here it comes. But I said and I predicted, listen, if you've ever seen an Avengers movie, you know what happens at the end. The world is almost going to die. But wait, 
What's the name of the Avengers movie? This is Aquaman. Ah, well then, Aquaman will suddenly appear and save the world, even though there may be cameos from Iron Man and Captain America and Black Widow and everybody else. Ultimately, the world will be saved, usually at about two hours and 10 minutes since the movie started, just in time for the two hour and 20 minute end of the movie. That's what's gonna happen. And guess what happened moments before midnight? Moments before midnight, after pictures of McCarthy going back and forth to the White House, oh yeah, we're talking about things. Guess what? A deal is struck. And to let you know how bad the deal is, you add this many Republicans and this many Democrats say, no, I'm not voting for that. No. Well, guess what? That means it sucked. It's either gonna be partisan one way or the other. And a compromise probably means it sucked. And you got to read all the things. There's a bunch of assistance programs that are going to expire in 2030. So people are going to be getting free handouts from the government. And then all of a sudden in 2030, boop, it's going to disappear. And someone else is going to have to swoop in and figure out a way to give them free stuff all over again. Unbelievable. You just heard all the things that were in there. Oh, the IRS, all that billions, tens of billions of dollars for the IRS or all those extra agents and all those things that were going to happen. We're going to take it out. Yeah, no, 80 billion. We want to take 60 out. Wrong-o, you know, they, did, they didn't take out more than 10, very little. So it's still in there. So get ready for more IRS agents and all the things you're talking about. So the answer is, what the hell did happen? Well, the answer is, there's all these little deals that are inside there. Somebody's going to get a park. Somebody's going to get this. Joe Manchin, I believe, got himself a pipeline through the forest, and everybody flipped out. Pipeline? It's supposed to be green energy time. What are you doing? <clears throat> you broke ranks. Well, Joe Manchin always breaks ranks. So all of my screaming aside, guess what? A bad deal happened because the debt is not being brought down. They're bringing the debt ceiling up. So you and me, American citizens, taxpayers, entrepreneurs, making the money that's being taxed, we got Joe, Ma Joe Manchin may have got the pipeline, but the American people got the shaft. You know, that's what happened. And so the debt ceiling is up, and there's going to be more debt for our children and great-grandchildren to worry about. And that's what happened. So people were asking me what happened. Was it good or bad? And so I think every time there's a debt ceiling deal and you don't hear real meaningful decreases in government spending, they just agreed on ways to, to elevate the debt ceiling. I mean, they just agreed on what they're going to be spending it on. And so here we go. Debt goes up. Deeper in debt. Another trillion. Trillion here, a trillion there. Pretty sure we're, we're talking finally about big money but that's it and so that's what happened you know the national credit card had its limit increase because everybody got their way with this program that program this program pipeline over here this over here and everybody got their way and now the limit on the credit card goes up and you and i are still paying for it Ta -da! that's what happened wow. <clears throat> you know on waiting for the government to solve problems is usually a long wait um, and what happened here, as I just said, is a compromise. This is going to bite us over time, um, like it always does. <clears throat> Entrepreneurs, on the other hand, you know, we're the ones out there building jobs, trying to enhance communities for people have money to invest and the local economy spins around. And we don't wait for government. Entrepreneurs don't wait for government. You know, in, in fact, entrepreneurs often succeed despite government. 
despite high interest rates and times of inflation and recession. I was part of a company that we went out during the nuclear winter for the economy in 2000, 2001, and we went out, got eight and then $10 million in venture capital to drive a company forward. Why? Because we had a great company with a great team that proved we have traction and it was working and there were people that said, there's not zero investment going on. There is venture capital investment, but it's only to the best who show that they can, if they could do it in this economy, they can do it in any economy. And that's what we had to do. So despite the economy, entrepreneurs don't wait. And some entrepreneur, like the team I was blessed to be a part of, you get it done. You know, the American spirit is one of what I like to call defiant optimism. I'm going to keep my optimism and my attitude about where I can go in the future, and I'm going to be defiant about whatever you try to throw in front of me. Oh, it'll never work. Just sit down. Take your government check. No, I don't want my government check. You know, I, I want a check from me, and I'm going to earn it, and I'm going to build it, and I'm going to build jobs, and I'm going to bring people into here to work with me. That's what I'm going to do. And I refuse to allow my vision and my mission to be impaired by the temporality of a tough economy or this president or that president. This was attributed to Nancy Pelosi. And she was talking about George Bush, W, the son. And she said, remember, <clears throat> we only have W for a maximum of eight years. We're going to be here long after that. What does that attitude tell you? <clears throat> that says that we, Congress, because she was House of Representatives, the People's Chamber, as it's called, she was thinking, I just got to get past you. And if I get a majority here, if you have a tough midterm and I get a majority here, ha ha, I can stall you. You know, or you can veto and I may not be able to override the veto, but you can't get it done, I can't get it done. It's a Mexican stalemate, except the power of the purse lies with Congress and they can keep spending. So there you have it. <clears throat> you know, here you go back to, to that and you have the attitude in government. We're going to be here longer than any president is. Whereas entrepreneurs look at it, I really don't care. I'm just going to build and go through. And we have with us today, coming on now, exactly this kind of American spirit. And I'm so looking forward to you to meeting. This is a restaurateur. But it really doesn't matter what he is. Once you hear him talk, and once you hear about what he did, and what inspired him, and where he came from, and where he, where he went to school, and what he went through, you're going to see this is just an indomitable American spirit that picked up the mantle of capitalism and entrepreneurship and drove forward and built success. And he built success that served the rest of us because he built some tasty success. Mm -hmm. And so joining us now is Mr. Antonio Swad, who is the founder of Wingstop and Pizza Patron. And along the way, he was a great dad. You're going to hear about that. And he was also, <laughs> he actually, at one point, he said, I'm going to make a difference here. I'm going to run for Congress. So he did that too. So Antonio, welcome. Hey, Tom, welcome. Thank you for having me. I really appreciate the opportunity. I can tell from your monologue that I'm definitely in the right church pew uh, this morning. <laughs> you know, I think, uh, think I'm in the right seat for sure. That's right. Well, I've got water if I'm thirsty, but I've had more than enough coffee. So it's like, and, and as people around here know, some days uh, I don't need coffee. I am coffee. So, <laughs> All right. <clears throat> so I want to start to introduce yourself a little bit and introduce the beginning of your journey. So it was, and introduce where you came from, where you grew up, and then take us to 1986 where you made that decision to say, I'm 
going to be self-employed and I'm going to go build something? Well, you know, I didn't uh, didn't have a, a formal education in business, certainly, but I've tried to educate myself along the way and stay in the same industry long enough that allowed me to reinvest some of the things that I learned uh, back into back into the industry as I progressed. I started off in the dish room. I was, we had one one job below the dishwasher, and that was called the pots and pan boy. And I was I started off in a steakhouse in Columbus, Ohio as the, the pots and pan boy that got promoted to get to run the dish, the dish machine eventually. And then all the jobs thereafter, line cook, and then eventually uh, some years later, I was promoted to general manager. Kind of funny, I started at 15 in the dish room when I turned 21 with the same company. Uh, they had a requirement that you had to have some college education, which I didn't, and you had to be 21 before you can be a GM. They waived the college for me and gave me my first assignment back to that very same restaurant that I started at. I started as a dishwasher. I, I never walked by that uh, dish machine without having uh, you know, a flashback to uh, uh -huh. just a few years earlier. I was standing there soaking wet washing those dishes. That is awesome. And so... Here you are, you literally started, you know, by the way, I started at a restaurant. My first job was in a restaurant and I, I was a prep cook. Here, don't cut yourself, cut carrots, <laughs> do all this prep and stuff. You know, I would boil shrimp and then set them, set them aside mm -hmm. in little servings for shrimp cocktail. Incredibly simple stuff. They gave me things that, that even a kid could not screw up. You know, <laughs> wash your hands, get your gloves and do all this stuff lettuce, onions, all the stuff. They had a big old salad bar at this restaurant. But I remember going through that, and a year later, I was actually a chef's assistant working on the line. I, I would prep the plate at the end, and I would read the items off, the, min, off the, uh, the ticket, you know, the order, and then here would come the steaks and the stuff that would go on there, and I had to have the plates all perfectly set up with all the sides, put them up in the window, put the ticket with it, and off they went to a happy customer. But I remember I started in the back. I started in the back. This is a knife. Don't cut yourself. And I was, you know, I was taking Some cucumbers, scoring the sides of cucumbers with a fork, and then cutting them individually. You know, putting them. In, I, I get it. I started, and I remember, I would always walk back there and see all the prep cooks back there, people just doing prep, and telling them, yeah, that, saying, hey, cucumbers are too thick. You gotta cut them like this. You're going in a salad. Da 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 da. Giving them the same tips that I got, but I, I so appreciated. You know what I was able to do over two years. You know, then I was, I wasn't the cook. I didn't get the tips at the end of the night. I was just kind of a line assistant, an expediter, if you will. But um, I remember that. So that was back. And by the way, I was doing this about the same time. You know, <clears throat> my first job uh, back think, then. I think I'm was, a little older than 80, you. I uh... 80, 81 was when I was doing this. Oh yeah, see, I am older than you. I was uh, grew up in Columbus, Ohio, and. Got my first job uh, in the in the 70s, actually, in the late 70s, and then throughout throughout the 80s in the restaurant. About the restaurant industry, I love it so much. I love it to this day, even though I'm not currently actively in in the restaurant business. But it's uh, it's an industry that really can accept anyone if you're willing to show up and do the work. You know, it you don't necessarily have to be pretty. You don't necessarily have to have this. Uh, great pedigree or the, a lot of uh, degrees, but you do have to show up and you have to be willing to, to do the work. And, uh, and, and that's one of the things that I like. I used to tell people, I love the restaurant business because there's a million ways to fail. And, uh, and, and, and the flip side of that is there's a million challenges and a, 
a million types of different uh, business disciplines that you have to employ in order to be successful in the restaurant industry. So I love it. I love talking about it. That's fantastic. It so two questions. Who were you in high school and what did your parents instill in you? Because obviously that work ethic and, the, and your dedication came from somewhere. So who were you in high school and how did your parents guide that? And then jump us over to 1986 where you said, I got all this experience in restaurant, I'm gonna do it myself. You know, I was raised in a blue collar uh, family. My father's an over the road truck driver and my mother was a waitress. And it doesn't really get much more blue collar than that. Uh, I uh, wasn't a particularly good student in school. In fact, I left high school at the earliest possible moment. I graduated from high school. I did graduate uh, at 16 years old and I was working full time in the aforementioned uh, steakhouse. Um, so the restaurant, the restaurant business was really uh, kind of a savior for me. Uh, I met a man earlier, early in my career who was kind of calling my restaurant father, and he, he had a big influence on me uh, as well. But I watched my parents and I watched how hard they worked, and uh, no one in my family ever discussed going to college. I mean, certainly we didn't have the money. I didn't know that such thing as a student loan existed. Uh, I didn't even know if it did back then. So it wasn't like, oh, where are you going to school? Where are you going to school? Quite the opposite of what I've been experiencing now with my with my own children and who they all go to school. And we'll see we'll see how that works out. But um, in 1986, I had just finished working at a, as a general manager in a restaurant in upstate New York. I, I tell people it's kind of where the earth ends. It was just a few miles from the Canadian border, Black River, Watertown, New York. I took the job sight unseen. I was offered a job as a GM and I looked it up. Literally, I looked it up in a Funk and Wagnalls encyclopedia. You remember those, right? And it had one little paragraph on Watertown, New York. It said, oh, beautiful upstate New York, Finger Lakes region, known for dairy and all this. I said, I closed the book. I said, I'll take the job. I, that sounds beautiful. Little did I know that I was driving to the end of the earth to experience the absolute worst winter on record for even Watertown. It was so severe that year that I was there uh, that they pulled the troops from Fort Drum and sent them to Alaska, sent them to Alaska because the winter we were having was too severe for the troops to have the sufficient training. That was the year, that was the year that I uh, did, was in uh, Watertown, New York. But I'll tell you what, I learned a lot. Uh, the owner lived out of state. He kind of flipped me the keys. It was an old building, so old, they added electricity to it when electricity was invented. So I was <laughs> maintenance man. Uh, I was the, the general manager. I worked every shift. I ate every meal and I even was able to stay upstairs in a little room, which enabled me to save all my money for that year, which turned out to be my seed money to open my first pizza restaurant uh, in, in, in 86. So, um, you know, I don't know if what I liked most, the, the knowledge or the, the money, but it was the money I started with, $11,500, I'll never forget. There you go. Well, the earth doesn't end at the Canadian border. My dad's side, my great-grandparents were Canadians from Toronto. So, however, I will say the earth may not end at the Canadian border, but they got here as soon as they could and, yeah, and they were in search of heat. And so they- Yeah, spent, hopefully they warmed up, yeah. Yeah, they spent, well, they spent one generation in Effingham, Kansas, 
which they declared was a terrible mistake, and then they went all the way out to Long Beach, California. So, and if you know anything about Long Beach, it's right on the Pacific Ocean, so you can't go any further. So they just kept going until they had to stop, you know, and uh, that's where my dad was born out there. But no, the family story is very, very similar. So, so here you are in Watertown, New York. So take us to that, to the creation of Pizza Patron and then getting to Dallas. Yeah, I'll tell you, I had a friend who uh, was also, I met through the restaurant industry. He was a little bit older than me. He's mentored me quite a bit, Mr. Gene Perkins. And he lived, he moved to Dallas. And uh, prior to that, I've only lived in Columbus, Ohio. And then I've lived in upstate New York and really had no experience with, uh, with sunshine. <laughs> Number one, and didn't know much about seeing the sun, but I had saved my money and I knew I was destined to be self-employed. I had a difficult time really working, uh, working with other people and I wanted to own my own business. I don't know, somehow it's ingrained in me, got to own my own business. And I had all these lofty ideas about the kind of restaurant I would start and all that. The reality is I had $11,500 and there's not a lot you can do with that. Uh, but when I was done with that job, I fulfilled my agreement. I had my money. I came to Dallas where my friend was. And, uh, and I had just enough money to buy some used equipment, rent a place in a very, very uh, difficult part of town and, uh, and open. I will never forget, I opened April the 16th, 1986, the day after tax day. The name of the, the, name of the pizza place, and, we, and it was called Pizza Pizza, and I named it that because I wanted there to be no confusion <laughs> what we were selling in there. We were selling pizza. However, I had run out of money and couldn't afford a sign. So I just had a banner. But when the sun went down, you couldn't see the banner. And it, it was off to a rocky start, uh, to say the least. However, um, I did have one of these things that I guess we call aha moments or something, uh, which really got me focused. If it wasn't for that, it would have been just another pizza place in a world of pizza places. We did have a point of difference in that the large pepperoni pizza was only $5, but we didn't deliver. Uh, but this is the first time in my, in my life that I had experienced uh, Latinos. I mean, I grew up in Columbus. Uh, we pretty much had white, white folks and we had African-Americans. We didn't live in the same neighborhoods uh, back then. Uh, the same thing up in upstate New York, but I had no, no experience with uh, the Latino culture. And when I went to Texas for the first time, I didn't know even where the pizza store was located relative to the, the neighborhoods or the ethnicities of the neighborhoods, but I didn't know, but I had put this carry out pizza store, 750 square feet, $500 a month, uh, rent in, in an area that was the second densest Hispanic neighborhood in in the Metroplex in the Dallas the Dallas area the second most we'll get to the first in a minute um, and few people came in but the people that came in the store most of them were were of Mexican descent most of them almost all of them were first generation immigrants some of them had little little children. And many times I would like leaning over the front counter and trying to get the order for the pizza from the small little girl or the small boy who would act as translator 
for his mom or his dad because they spoke no English. I spoke no Spanish. And here I am trying to take a pizza order from a four-year-old, hoping I'd get it right. And, and then a kind of a bell went off and said, well, what if I was to able to focus this business and serve, uh, say that we predominantly serve or we reach out to serve uh, Spanish language or Spanish dominant uh, Latinos that live in the neighborhood. If I had all of their business, I wouldn't need any business from anyone else and it would be enough to support this. So that was the beginning of changing the name from Pizza Pizza to Pizza Patron, uh, Patron being the, the benevolent leader of the community, sounds good to me. I got to reuse the second P in my uh, vinyl window sign too. And um, and I and from that moment forward, everything we did was focused on serving this community with respect, uh, providing them with a consistent uh, product at an unprecedented value. And, they, and it was appreciated, it really was. That's fantastic. Um, if you know anything about what Patrick talks about, the insurance company made that was serving the new American middle class, incredible diversity, but it's almost 50% Hispanic and it's 51% female. As a matter of fact, the average rep is a Hispanic female, late 30s. And so it's the same thing, was serving a market that hadn't been served, but serve it so well. Um, that's fantastic. So you ultimately, how many of those did you open in Dallas? Well, the, the, the second restaurant, and I was a bootstrapper, as they say. I never was able to, I never borrowed money. I guess I never had the confidence thinking that anybody would loan me money or I was worthy of loaning money. But uh, I, I opened the first pizza store with the money that I had saved from the, the New York job. Uh, and then after operating it and saving money from the sale of those pizzas, I was able to open a second store. But this time I went across town to an area of Dallas called Oak Cliff, which was the number one Hispanic uh, area in Dallas. And that was where that was where my second store was. And man, that store went off like a rocket ship uh, because we opened the store fully focused on serving this community, serving serving this customer. And uh, and 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 that was really when I knew, hey, you know, uh, this, th there's something to this. There's something to focus, you know, and that's true in, to this day in business, you know, and that's why well-run companies really have extreme focus on what they're doing or who they're trying to serve. And, um, and that was store number two. I went on and added two more, had four pizza stores open at the time. Now, fast forward to 1996, I've got some extra money in my pocket from the sale of these pizzas. Um, and I wanted to franchise something. I had studied franchise distribution and uh, thought that, man, franchising is the way to really grow uh, a brand. And as long as you can control ownership of the brand, eventually you could sell it and, 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 and make some money. And that was the beginning of Wingstop. But it was born out of the money I was able to save with the four pizza stores. So in 1994, uh, I had enough extra money put aside, uh, again, with all used equipment. I put together the Wingstop concept and opened the first store in Garland, Garland, Texas. And that was the beginning of the wing business for me. Fantastic. <clears throat> so tell us about the menu for Wingstop because that's the product. And whether it's a restaurant that has a certain cuisine or it's a certain 
individual element or something you do well, like a pizza or wings, you had high focus on that. What led you to think about wings as the concept for your next, you know, super, super, you know, it was almost drive-through because it was, you go in there, take away, you get your bucket of, and you, you go home and you eat with friends at the, and watch the game. I mean, it was really, you, it's a staple in Dallas. You saw wing stops everywhere. Yeah, but you know, um, it's it's funny. You know, there's this expression that I have, and it it goes it goes like when uh, when the student is ready, the teacher will appear. And sometimes the teacher is not necessarily a person. Sometimes it could be a moment in time. So back up now to when I was a waiter in the '80s. I was a waiter in a fine dining restaurant in Dallas, kind of fine dining. And uh, they had a happy hour every day, Monday through Friday, in the in the bar. And one of the side jobs of the waiter was to keep the chafing dishes full of the free hors d'oeuvres in in there, as well as wait tables. And and uh, on Wednesdays, uh, we had it was Wing Day. Now this is back in the '80s. This is long before Wingstop, but this is how things stick, stick, stick with you. You kind of break it off and shove it deep down in your pocket and think, I might need this knowledge or this uh, bit of information someday. So on Wednesdays, uh, we would fry up these little tiny chicken wings called wingdings. They were a product by Pierce Foods. I don't know if they still make them. They were very salty. And uh, salt, grease, and sugar are the three key ingredients to any addictive food. Uh, these had two of the three. It had the, the grease from the deep fat frying, and they were very salty. And, man, we couldn't keep them, keep those chafing dishes full. I, I can remember the, the general manager came to me and said, man, we've done a really good job building this happy hour. Don't you think that uh, – don't you think we're, this happy hour is really, really catching on? Wednesday was a bigger happy hour than Friday or bigger than Thursday. It was Incredible. the biggest happy – and the guy just didn't realize – no, man, here's why. On Wednesdays, we have these wings, and people love them. It's something they can't prepare at home. They're deep fat fried. Very few people are willing to do that at home. They're highly seasoned. You get that flavor in your mouth, and you can't forget it until next Wednesday, where you're going to go to this happy hour. And we built that happy hour. I never forgot that. Uh, and that was that was a decade uh, preceding the opening of the first Wingstop. But I'm I'm going to tell you, people love fried food. People love chicken. And when you can combine it with uh, some very interesting flavor profiles and some proprietary flavors that we developed with the sauces, wrap it up in a in a thematic package. And then Wingstop uh, was an aviation kind of a friendly aviation theme package. Um, uh, you know, word got out after the opened that first store, and people started coming. They they drove an abnormal amount of distance to buy these chicken wings because they couldn't get them anywhere else. And once they had that flavor in their mouth, it, it haunted them. You know, it, it, it called them back until they came the next time and the next time. We started doing some crazy business in this little store. My goal was franchising, and I knew finally I have a model that has uh, enough uh, volume and have a favorable enough ratio of investment to sales. And that's one of the key things in any franchise model. You got to have a favorable ratio there. Um, I think I could teach other people to do this. I think other people would buy this business 
and in 96 started franchising uh, the first Wingstop restaurant in, in, in Dallas, Texas. There you go. <clears throat> really amazing. So what are the early lessons? There's a lot of people that watch a PBD podcast or watch a BizDoc podcast or, or hear on Valuetainment, and they own their own business. As a matter of fact, yeah. the last time we did a PBD Live, I don't even remember, we had a couple people on here. Uh, Giuliani was on here, and we did it for a live audience. And halfway through, Pat said, just out of curiosity, how many people of you own a business? 70% of the hands went up of people that own businesses. So that's our audience here. And a lot of times, it's great to hear that you're not crazy. It's great to hear that, um, that what you're doing is okay or that all you need to do is go another mile and you're going to make it across the desert. You know, what were some lessons you learned early on maybe from mistakes you made. I've made mistakes in business that have almost cost me everything, by the way. Um, and then I've made decisions that were phenomenal and the leverage off of the decision was incredible. Yeah. What were some, if you were speaking to somebody that's about three to five years into their entrepreneurial journey, they built something, they got it up, it's going, and they're really trying to get it to really go to be that permanent lifestyle business. Thinking back to those days, what were some lessons you learned or tips that you got from other people that were so incredibly helpful that you look back and you say, wow, that was a real leverage point there? Well, I, I tell you one, one real quick story. When I was building the first Wingstop, uh, along with a guy that was the first general manager who went on to become a multimillionaire as a franchisee, he was helping me build it. And we went into a Home Depot. Home Depot had just opened back then. I had my tape measure and I must have looked more like a construction guy than a restaurant guy, but we had no money and we did everything ourselves. And the guy was waiting on me. He said, what are you fellas building? And we said, well, we're building this little restaurant uh, down the street there in Garland. Oh, he said, what kind of restaurant is it? I said, well, you're gonna sell chicken gonna sell chicken wings. And he was like, and 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 what else? I mean, but what are you really what are you really gonna sell? I said, we're really gonna sell chicken wings and a couple other side items is what the restaurant's gonna sell. And here's where he thought I was the working for somebody who was gonna build it. He said, Let me give you some advice. He said, as soon as you're done with that job, you be sure and get all your money from that man because a damn sure nobody can make a living selling nothing but chicken wings. <laughs> I thought that was so funny uh, because uh, here's the lesson. People, you got to be careful who you listen to when you own your own business because people are quick to offer up their opinions about what you should do, what you're doing wrong. But these are the people that have never signed the front of a paycheck in their life and probably never will. They don't know the gravity of being self-employed. They don't know the gravity of the responsibility that comes with employing others. And, uh, but, we're, but sometimes we give them the power to discourage us. And, and, and they should have no voice because unless you've done it and you've done it more successfully than me, I don't have an ear, I don't have an ear to listen, listen to it. People wanna, just like the crabs in the pot story, they know there's no chance of them getting out of the pot. So when a crab starts to get one arm over the edge, they pull, want to pull you back down into the, the pot of mediocrity, the pot of just a mere existence, the pot of working for somebody else your whole life. And, and those people will steal your dream if you 
let them. And the secret is do not let them. That is incredibly powerful. And what you just said, um, let me tell you, we're going to clip that out of here and we're going to tweet that because what you just said is just a powerful piece of advice in that little, little package there. You know, you, you're so correct. People are so, you know, for their own fears and their own need to have an opinion, their own need to be right, are so eager to throw breadcrumbs out there to you. But it's not their money. It's not their risk. It's not their life. Right. It's not what they're doing. And by the way, they're, they're working over here for someone else. So, and maybe they have to. Maybe they have a kid. Maybe they, they don't have any choice and they haven't got any capital to risk. Okay, well then do your thing. Do your thing. But yeah, but ever wish me well, you know, wish me well and, and, and mean it instead of really kind of under your breath, wishing that I'll be back down in the pot with you in a minute. The second lesson that I've learned, and I found this true in life in general, uh, and this is what I would tell somebody that's early on in their business career. Most people quit too soon. And that's true of relationships as well as it is in business. Most people give up too soon before they've had an opportunity to use what they're learning. And it's kind of like uh, putting the nutrients back into the soil. You grow your first crop and it was a so-so crop, but you can plow it under and now you can fertilize your soil for your next crop to be even better. If you constantly quit and try different things and jump around, you don't get to, you know, you never get to grow a crop in your enriched soil. And that's why I've noticed people quit too soon. And, and if it's something that you think you can learn from your mistakes, correct, and fall down forward, man, you got to do it. But I see people give up all the time on, on a lot of things. And, uh, and that would be one of the, probably the second thing that I would say is, uh, don't quit too soon. You know, you never know how close you are to almost cracking it. Uh, if you quit, you just, you'll never know. There you go. You know, so tell us the rest of the Wingstop story. So you, you got there. Now take us through the arc of franchising and ultimately, you know, coming to a sale and have that happen. Because people are in here, they forget about, everybody talks about the startup phase. Everybody talks about this. But then the growth and expansion phase doesn't get a lot of coverage. You don't read a lot of stories about that because it's not sexy. It's not sexy. You succeeded. You got a business grown. People will be envious. Oh, he got lucky. He's got this business going. And then for the next X years, you're driving it and you're building it and you're adding to it. And there's a lot of things that can go right and wrong in there. But people, sometimes people look at it and they, there's nothing to see here. It's just not sexy. You know, tell us about that. How many years was that where you, you knew Wingstop was going? You had the second location and now you're going to franchise what was that run like and what did you learn along the way? First thing I looked at in franchising, I was interested in franchising long before I ever opened Wingstop. I mean, but I knew that the pizza concept wasn't, uh, didn't differentiate itself enough at that time uh, to, to really be a good franchise. Even with the focus on the Hispanic community, at that time, I didn't think it was enough. Fast forward a decade or so when I came back and did franchise Pizza Patron on a national scale. Uh, but it was a little different because I had more money. It was better funded. But I looked at franchising and I looked at the litigation where a lot of there's a lot of litigation in franchising where unhappy franchisees that fail 
typically uh, sue the franchisor for a variety of reasons. Generally, it comes down to three, one of three reasons. So I looked at the litigation and I knew that when I structured my franchise system, that I would sidestep these three areas where most people and most litigation uh, was was happening. Uh, when Before you franchise a concept, you're really, you're franchising an, a brand, you're franchising an operating system, and obviously the, the product uh, in the method of the, that the product is prepared. So you have to have that screwed down pretty tight. I tell people this, if people are able to execute your concept at 80% efficiency, okay, not the 100% that you believe you do or, or that everyone should, but only 80%. Because keep in mind, most people that buy a franchise, particularly a food franchise, have little to no aptitude at all for the industry. They, they just don't. But that's why they're buying a franchise. They think uh, that it's a sure win. And it's, it's, it's not a sure win, but it's a better odds win. So I would say screw, your, screw the concept down so tight, the operating system so tight, that if it could be executed at 80%, the customer experience, the customer wouldn't know that it's not 100%. They would come in, the service would still be reasonably good, the place would be reasonably clean, and the food would be great, and it would be prepared consistently the same way from visit to visit, from location to location, and now you're on you're on the road to building a brand and putting building intrinsic value into that brand. And remember, as the franchisor, you own the brand. You may not own all the outlets, but that's okay because those people risk their money and their capital to the, to to the most part to build your brand. The reward from them is plenty, and the reward for the Wingstop franchisees has been crazy good. Uh, almost every one of the uh, the original pioneers, as we called them, have done very, very well. Many of them have cashed out. Uh, and 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 here's the interesting thing. You know, we can both agree, Tom, that in every endeavor, a, a degree of luck is involved. And we know we make our luck. Part of my luck was I met a guy shortly after the franchising program began that um, trained SBA lenders for banks. He had some sort of program where he trained bankers how to complete all the documents and do all the SBA loans. He loved Wingstop. And he and I were able to put together a program that uh, just pretty much regular folks with a minimum amount of down payment. Some of it was their retirement savings. My first franchisee was a school teacher, a woman school teacher who used her teacher retirement as the down payment, borrowed the rest from an SBA program because the ratios, and again, ratios of the concept were so favorable, not only uh, investment to sales, but the margins were favorable. The labor efficiency of a wing stop in the early days was extremely favorable. The sales per square foot was some of the highest in the industry. So it, it, you could make money. You could easily service that SBA debt make more money than you ever did in your life working a regular job and then you had the capability of becoming a uh, by a second store third store and it's always easier as you know to do business a second time so uh i met this guy and 
he was able to show me how we could package it up and feed these SBA deals to a variety of banks, which he had relationships because he trained and installed the SBA program. Now, there's nothing underhanded here or crooked or illegal. He recognized a good uh, franchise opportunity uh, when he saw one. It was I had this model screwed down tight, as we discussed, and uh, the the default rate was was zero, was non-existent. Pretty much everybody that got involved and did this SBA loan that was packaged through. Uh, this guy's firm and sent to one of the banks where he trained the lenders uh, that everybody made money. The loans were repaid. The franchisee um, made crazy money. Many, almost all of them went on to own two, three, five uh, stores. My uh, first guy to take Wingstop outside of the Dallas market uh, currently owns uh, about a hundred stores. He's the largest franchisee in the system. Coincidentally, He's the guy that I sold Pizza Patron to, and he became the franchisor. He was an 11-store franchisee. Then he became the franchisor because he wanted to own the whole thing. Good for him. <laughs> there you go. When did you know it was the right time to, to sell? Sounds like a deal came together there, but when did you know it was the right time? People always tell me, when's the right time to sell? And I said, well, wait. You can house flip and you can go to all kinds of seminars. And if the time is right, you can flip houses. You buy one, you do the few things to it, turn it into a rental, Airbnb, or just sell it. And you can get lucky on the timing, but be careful because the timing can bite you. It can come the other way too. For every 2005, 2004 where things are crazy, there's a 2007, 2008 where things are crazy in the wrong way. How did you know when was the right time to say, yeah, every day I wake up, let's run a great business. That's job one. But then there's a knock at the door, that phone call. How did you know it was the right time? <laughs> uh, it's not going to be the answer maybe you're expecting because it doesn't really have a, a dollar figure attached to it. You know, some people will say, if I could get X number, insert any number, I'd sell if they'd offer me that. For me, it was something else. I was a uh, not eating any meat. I was a vegetarian at the time. And when I developed Wingstop and the sauces, to be honest, I was really just working on the sauces. I never really ate any of the chicken because I was not eating animals, not eating chicken to this day. Now, here's the funny thing. Fast forward, I eat a little chicken now and then, mostly fish, uh, nothing else. But I had a moment where I went to a Dallas Cowboy game with my wife at the time. And this was back when the Texas stadium was in the old stadium and they announced the attendance at every game. And, and, and so we're sitting there and we're watching the game. I had maybe at the time, oh man, 30, 40 stores open, but a whole bunch of stores in the pipeline. And we were signing leases and signing development agreements and man, things were cooking for Wingstop, right? They announced the attendance and it was like 78,000 something, something, something. So I'm a kind of a mental math guy. So I'm sitting there and I'm doing some math. Now the chicken we got came in four 10 pound packages to a case. Each case was 40 pounds. There was about 12 to 14 wings per pound. I'm doing all this math. And it occurred to me that if there was a chicken on every seat watching the game instead of people. I know 
going to lose you on this. I hope not. But this is what this is when the moment I really decided to sell that that still we would have to kill more chickens than that to just to serve the number of customers that were gone into the store to buy wings while I was sitting there with my wife watching the game. I felt like there's a massive hypocrite because I'm growing this business and it's just growing like a son of a gun. And the, the need to, to, you know, to raise and kill more and more chickens was getting greater and greater and greater. And, um, and I, just, I just felt horrible about it. I mean, I couldn't get that vision of chickens on the seat and we had to kill them all and it wasn't enough still. And uh, it, it's funny how the universe is. It, a few weeks after that, I was putting the interior, I did all the interior decor in the first hundred or so stores. I was up on a ladder doing the interior in one of the new, most recent stores. My phone rang and it was that guy I told you about that was the SBA loan packager. His name was Tim and he said, hey, can you, can you talk? I, I need to talk to you about something. I said, well, let me come down off this ladder. I called him back. He said, I've been approached by a guy that's kind of a business broker and he'd like to talk to you and see if maybe you'd be interested in and uh in, in in selling your company and so i agreed to meet with him and you keep in mind that i've still got the chicken images on my head uh feeling feeling like a hypocrite and uh and i met with this guy and he said well you know uh i think i can get i can get uh 20 million dollars for your for your company i'm like really $20 million. Yeah, I, I, I think I get $20 million. Well, he said, would you sell it for that? I, and it really wasn't a dollar number I was looking for. I was just looking to feel better. And I said, yeah, I would sell it for that. And he ended up getting more than that for it, quite honestly. And uh, about nine months after that conversation, uh, deal closed. When I sold, And I sold the company to a group. Now, they kept it for a number of years. They sold it to Rourke Capital, who sold it, who took 25% of Wingstop Public and made $85 million selling only 25%. <laughs> and now if you look at the valuation of the company, it's about $2.5 billion. So, uh, so good for everybody, I guess. Now, the funny thing is, shortly after that, I started eating chicken again. So that was, <laughs> I don't know, man. You just, uh, sometimes you just gotta, you, you, you gotta go with your heart, you know, you gotta go with your heart. Yep. When we were talking, uh, getting ready for this, this podcast, you made a comment that, you know, how you came up, your parents and everything, but there was a time where you said, you know what, I wanna, I'm gonna, leave some knowledge for my for my son and you talked about a letter you wrote with a bunch of lessons in it you know can you share a little bit about that um, yeah i have a my i have a son that uh, just graduated from high school and is going got accepted to i'm very proud of him the macomb business school at university of texas and uh and i gotta t i gotta tell you tom i had no idea what they teach in business school you know but i'm sure it's some good stuff because a lot of those folks come out of there and they and, and they do very very well but i wanted to tell him some of the things that i kind of learned along the way and i've got bumps and bruises and in my business career and like you you know i've made mistakes but they're only real mistakes if you don't learn from them 
But so I, I made him I made him a, a list of four or five things. And the first one I put number one on the list. And this is this kind of uh, people don't think about this and they certainly don't teach this in business school. But your personality, your personality is probably one of your biggest business tools. As long as business is still done by humans, uh, you know, we we're, humans are funny. You know, we we kind of like to do business with people that that we like. And I said, without saying it like this, work on your personality. You know, it's as important as as knowing, you know, a complex of finance models, because people like to do business with people that are likable. Try try to be likable. You know, simple, simple as that. I could be wrong, but my life has taught me that I'm not so wrong about that. You know, nobody likes nobody likes to work with an ass, you know, so don't be one. Second thing I told him was people need to learn, and in particularly true in business, you need, to learn, you need to learn to be a better listener. If you're in a negotiation with some with someone or another group, or, or you're trying to make a deal, whether it's negotiating a commercial lease or a real estate transaction, if you allow the other person to talk without trying to spill, fill the space with your own voice, train yourself to be an acute listener. They will tell you. They will tell you eventually exactly what they're going to need to make the deal happen. They will tell you what the most important thing is. And they will also allude to what are the things that they'd be willing to give up. But you can't hear those things if you're talking all the time. And so one of the things in my letter, my son, is learn to listen better. It's true about everything in life, but it's especially true in business. And then one of the third thing is, and I, I, I phrase it like this, I, the best deal I ever did was maybe the deal I didn't do. And that what I mean by that is, don't ever be afraid to walk from a deal. Don't ever be afraid to push away from the table. If your gut is telling you, hey, this is a bad deal. I don't trust this person. It's unlikely that I'll ever see the end of this deal, I'll ever get my money, they'll ever perform on this agreement, whatever it is, it's okay to trust your gut without justification other than I just don't feel right about the deal. Intuition is a very, very powerful thing. And I believe, and I've learned this lately in life, you can develop your intuition. It's kind of like lifting weights. You can build your muscles. You can also develop your intuition, and it's very handy in doing business uh, transactions. Those are, those are a couple of things. There's a, there's a few more, but uh, uh, <laughs> yeah, he read the letter, and hopefully he'll go back and reread it in five or ten years. And I, I think those are really powerful. And, you know, what's really even more powerful is you came from this, God bless your parents, blue collar upbringing, you experienced these things, you had some success, and then you wanted to say, what do I take out of this and give back to my kid? And it's not necessarily big grand things. Uh, sometimes there's simple things that are very powerful. Um, people ask me about my daughters, and I say, well, your daughters are really nice, they're well behaved. I said, okay, you can thank my wife for all of that. You know, if they, if they only watch me, I, you know, the, their behavior index would be much different. You know, um, the, you know, it's a, uh, yeah, <laughs> you know how you know how men are. The the interesting thing when people ask me, well, 
what's key for your daughters? What's well, a couple things? I said, listen, I want to teach them to reason and resist. I want to teach them to reason in any situation and to resist the bad decision or a suboptimal decision, whether that's going drinking with friends, whether that's, you know, dating somebody or doing something or getting involved in a, a project at school and then shaving off the edges or cheating. You know, I want them to be able to reason and then resist. And if I leave them with that, they can go out and experience the world and they'll make mistakes, but hopefully I give them those tools. Um, and I, that's what I, the number one and number two thing that I usually talk about, you know, with my girls. I, you know, you can say, well, I don't want them to graduate college with any debt. Well, I can do that too. But the question is, are there lessons in that? Or that just, does that just make it easy for them? Or is there a lesson in that? Well, I happen to think that, you know, the student loan industry is scam central. And I think students get completely totally. screwed, screwed totally. on the interest rate. So I don't want them to walk into that. And I don't want them to walk out with student loans. And I don't want them to pay that kind of usury for it. But, um, you know, different things. But at the same time, I educate them about that. I say, you're going to come out of college without any debt. But let me tell you what the alternative is. And let me tell you why that's, that's bad. Let's reason through this. And so it's basic things. It's not any grand 20-page thing and show them trophies from business or deal toys that have big dollar signs on them. It's none of that. It's basic stuff that builds character of the citizen. That's, that's what I'm working on. Fundamentals, you know? right? Just fundamental stuff and knowing how, uh, how, to, how to treat people. You know, uh, One of the things, too, that I added on my, my list when doing a deal, you know, the, uh, there are some people in business, and I've, man, I've, I've met some of them. Their version of being a good business person is to absolutely smash the other side, to just crush them. And they, that's the kind of stuff that they brag about with their buddies. Man, I really smashed it. You know, that's really, to me, uh, not a good thing. I believe in, if, if you, particularly if you're in a tough negotiation, it's okay to leave some meat on the bone for the other side. You never know in this life when you're going to want to do another transaction or business with that same group or that same entity again. And uh, you want to keep them alive. You know, you want to keep them in the game so that you have a chance to maybe to, to, do, an, to do another deal. You know, I've done business. Uh, one of the sale of one of my companies with a group where their belief was uh, to, to screw the other person by hiding a lot of language in the document, over lawyering the thing. And that to them was was fun. You know, uh, I, I, I don't believe that. I think business. I love business because when done correctly, everyone wins. Everybody can win. Everybody can prosper. And that's why I think it's so important that we work so hard to preserve a system and an, a government and an economy that promotes small business and allows for uh, small business to grow. Small business is the incubator of, uh, of new ideas and, and new things. And, and if we have a government that is working to make people more government dependent instead of less uh, less government dependent and more independent than they're working against business. They're working against us. It's, it's interesting you say that because um, 
you ultimately decided that you were going to run for Congress in a really tough Texas district. Um, the districts downtown Dallas had been redrawn. You know, I was supporting a congressional candidate up there uh, in North, North Dallas. You were running down there. And what led you to say, I think I need to take the next step and I'm going to run for Congress to see if I can help be part of the solution rather than just being one of the many people sitting back and saying, I can't believe this. I'm so upset by this. And maybe just giving money to a candidate. What made you decide you were going to cross that line and you were going to try to run? And this is 2022, so this wasn't that long ago. And unfortunately, <laughs> that district was very, I don't want to use the word rigged, but it was configured to go yeah. one way and one way only. But somehow you managed to almost get 40% of it. It was, it was you know, you know uh, it was a clear you know, win, but they were supposed to win. They drew the home field up to the point where it was almost impossible for somebody to win. But almost 40% of those voters went with you, which means they heard the message. They heard what you were talking about, and they knew that that was what we needed. Tell me a little bit about that, but more importantly, what was the encouragement and decision to go, you know what, I'm not gonna sit here and complain, just give to a candidate, I'm gonna be the candidate. How did, take us through how you process that. Well, <laughs> I'll tell you, talk about a learning experience. That was, a, man, I learned so much, and more than I learned, I confirmed a lot of the things that I thought I already knew about government and, uh, and, and, and how, it, how it really works in Washington. But I was at a station in my life where I, first of all, I, I didn't really have to worry about my family's security. You know, I've had two favorable exits uh, by selling, selling the companies that I built from scratch. Uh, so I was at a good, good, good time in my life. I was still young enough to have enough energy to actually do it. Uh, old enough to possess the wisdom that I think necessary to do the job. Uh, and to me, the job is representative. And that's very important because I, I was the running for uh, Congress, the congressman representative of the 32nd district in, in Dallas. And if you, I know I'm kind of old fashioned. I kind of believe the constitution and the spirit of the constitution. The spirit of the constitution said that these representatives, number one, they live in the district. I live in the heart of the 32nd district. People ride up and down, go past my house, big yard sign, they beep the horn. You know, that's where the candidate lives. And I'm very proud of that because I think it's difficult to represent people when you're not even amongst them, you don't even live and you don't even live there. Currently, I ran against uh, Colin Allred, who's the congressman that is a, uh, the incumbent that defeated me. He lives in Washington, D.C. He left the district years ago. Um, and he also is completely detached from some of the fantastic businesses. I thought so. I'm in a good good station in life that I can do this. I'm just naive enough to think that uh, if you have a good message and you can fund the campaign enough to get your message out, that people really do want to elect a self-made man. They really do want to elect a representative of themselves. And with me, it represented uh, if no matter who you were in the district, it, I, I, trust me, I've been as poor as the poorest citizen in District 32. And I'm also worked my way out of that to where 
reasonably wealthy, uh, and I can relate to those th th those people too. I covered this broad spectrum. I thought I'd be an excellent representative to go to Washington with with a simple message: government needs to serve us instead of us serving government. We need to make government smaller. Government needs to get out of the way so free enterprise and the free market can, can get back on track so we can have a lot of natural job creation, not government jobs, but natural job creation through the growth of these wonderful businesses that were started with the entrepreneurial spirit. I thought I had uh, I had the background for it. I know what the responsibility of employing others. I've had thousands of employees over my career. Every one of them, their check was good on Friday every time. Uh, I, I mean, I just thought I, I, I had the right stuff. What I didn't know is uh, it's very difficult to defeat an incumbent. It's more difficult to run as a Republican, and I'm a I'm a Republican in, in a predominantly uh, blue Democrat area. And, um, and, and raising enough money is a, is a monumental task. I mean, you could spend all your own money, and then people say, oh, it's just another rich guy trying to buy an election. Or you could try to get other people to donate to your campaign. But if they think you're such a long shot as people thought I was, and particularly even the re Republican leadership in Washington, and I made several trips there, they, it's all math to them. They looked at the district, they looked at, you know, the overwhelming odds that a Republican candidate could win the district, and they're saying, hey man, we're gonna put, we're gonna put our money on a, on a closer horse race than yours. So um, uh, you can have the best message, but if you can't afford to get your message out, um, you're silent. You're unheard. The 435 members of Congress are not necessarily, well, I know for sure they're not the 435 best representatives of their district. They are possibly the top 435 fundraisers, though. And uh, the system is designed to keep incumbents in office. They get to Washington. They get drunk on the power and the prestige of, of being a member of Congress. It's highly partisan. I mean, it starts from the moment you get off the bus. The Republicans go this direction. Oh, this, this office building over there, that's for the Republicans. This restaurant, that's for the Republicans. No wonder. No wonder we're in the situation that we're in. We are constantly being tried. We're divided as people. The, everybody is trying to put us into smaller and smaller and smaller groups and divide us further and further. And it starts in Washington. And the reason for that is because the more divided we are as a people, the weaker and the more silent our collective voice is. There you go. Well, you, like Patrick and I, are making, we've moved to Florida. You're yeah. on your way down here and <clears throat> you're doing something pretty special over there of where you moved and why you chose to do that and what you're doing in that neighborhood. Um, so are yep. you, you about to become a full-time Floridian or are you just gonna have a... No, full-time, I'm, I'm trying to be full-time. I love Florida. Uh, I don't like the direction that Dallas is going, you know, obviously politically and all, and all that, but I love Florida for a number of reasons. I came and bought some property shortly after Hurricane Ian. I'm sitting here right now at a rental home in Cape Coral, Florida, 
And I'm working on, uh, I got about a mile away, I've got a project, I bought a, a hurricane flooded, flooded house that, uh, you know, most people and most of the homes in the street, quite frankly, were just torn down, you know, and I, I don't, didn't want to see this house kind of go that way. I, I, I think it's a, a, a great old home built in 1963. The stories around here are really amazing. Cape Coral was one of these cities that was designed to give blue collar working class people an opportunity to have a waterfront home. They used to have a little airfield and people would literally get in an airplane with a salesman. They'd take off and they'd have a sack of flour and they'd fly <laughs> them around Cape Coral and the lot lines were drawn. And when you saw the lot you wanted to buy, you drop, you drop the flour out of the plane and it would mark your lot. And then you would land and go do the paperwork uh, and, uh, and buy the lot. And this house that I'm working on that I purchased was one of those flour sack lots home built in 1963 it's still got a plenty of good living left in it and i'm i want to move myself and and my family into it just as soon as i get it completed i i think that florida is possibly one of those last best places uh left where uh it's somewhat affordable you could you could be a tradesman you could uh, be just a regular guy and uh, you get your pretty nice place down here and raise your family well very very cool very cool. Well, Kellyanne, do we have any questions from the audience? We have several. I could pull them up on your screen now. Okay. Let's see. Okay. Um, so two questions for you, Antonio. It says, what was the overall drive to achieve all that? After you did the first one, what was the drive to do the second one, or did it just kind of happen? Question one. And number two, is there anything you wish you'd done differently with your life along the way? Oh, wow. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, I'll answer the, sec I'll answer the second one first. Um, no, nothing really comes to mind. I've had a wonderful life, and I still do. I practice gratitude, and I think it's important that everybody get up every morning and they live a disciplined life uh they practice two things humility and gratitude because that goes a long way i'm thankful for everything i have uh and i'm not sure that i would really have done anything differently i've learned from the hardest times were the best teachers and i'm not sure that i would have uh, done a lot differently. There is one thing that one lesson that I, I, I learned that I would probably redo is I I'm very debt averse. And you, as you know, Tom, there are different types of debt. There's there's debt that works for you, and then there's debt that you know you end up working working for it. Um, I saw as a, as a franchisor how many people were able to use debt as a growth vehicle through those SBA loans and, and get you know multiple restaurants gone at the same time and multiple streams of revenue and uh, pay back all the, the, the money eventually and still own the restaurant. I've never borrowed any money. I never went into debt because it keeps me up at night. You know, I, I can't stand to owe. If I owed you a dollar, I, I wouldn't rest until I found you. And gave you the, and gave you the dollar. So I think if I uh, maybe that's one of the things that they're going to teach uh, my son in business school is how to use debt effectively. And I think that that's one of the things that I would have done differently. But other than that, I'm I'm pretty happy with my life. As as far as uh, the drive, 
you know, they say there are there's a couple of different motivations in there, and this is true in advertising. There's fear motivation, there's greed motivation. And I can assure you, I, I've never motivated by greed, but I am motivi motivated by the fear of living a uh, mediocre life, you know, uh, that uh, I wasn't able to realize my uh, my full potential. I just read an interesting interesting quote by one of my favorite authors, a guy named David Goggins. I don't know, you know who Goggins is, but he's a real tough son of a gun, man, and he's written a couple of great books. And I'm paraphrasing his quote, but it says he feels sorry for people that have lived such a soft and comfortable life that will die and never realize their full potential. And I think that sums up me pretty good. I'm fearful of, of, of not realizing what could have been or how far I've, I could have taken, taken my life and, uh, and how many people's lives in, in, I could positively impact along the way. I've tried to leave everybody's life that I've touched, uh, leave them in a better place. And I've done that through business. Small business is, is, uh, is what makes that happen. That's why we have to fight to protect a system that allows small businesses to grow and prosper. And believe me, when I ran for Congress, my, my theme was, uh, uh, preserving the American dream. That means a lot of things, but what's happening right now, the American dream is under attack. If your American dream is to possibly be self-employed, possibly own, own your own home, um, you're under attack right now. You're under attack from, from a government that uh, only wants to promote more and more governmental growth and more and more people relying on the government and teaching them and teaching people and their children uh, to rely on the government and have little faith in themselves. And uh, that's that's a message that I'd like to tell people. Uh, look in the mirror, man. You're the president of your own life. Don't ever forget that. And it's up to you to make it happen. Love it. Well, thank you so much for joining us here. Um, I'd love to have you back again sometime, maybe with a panel of other small business owners, just to just to butter the bread with this knowledge for people that are trying to do it. Then, and they have a different starting point than you or I had. Um, it's a sure. tougher starting point today. Um, yep. And that's it. And you know, one of the ways they can hear from us is we like to say the Vault Conference is coming up August 30th to September 2nd down at the Diplomat Hotel. If you haven't checked it out, go to valuetainment.com and check it out because that's where we get together with people and you can hear voices similar to Antonio. They're going to be in the room that you're going to be having breaks with, you're going to be sitting with, they're going to be nodding out there as they hear things. And we got a great lineup of speakers down there. Patrick Bet David be speaking. We got Tom Brady speaking on leadership. Um, there's just a great lineup that's there. And so love to see Antonio again. We'll get it together. Here's where you can Thank check you. us out for the vaults. You can hear also Will Gadara. Also a story about success in restaurant, unreasonable hospitality, building up a restaurant until it became number one on the Michelin ratings. It's just incredible. And, of course, Mike Tyson. We're going to talk about adversity in his life as well as his walk to significance and being the top you know, if he was, you know, you look at Mike and you think about whatever you think about him, but he's got great words of wisdom of the kind of the lessons he's got through in life. And he's also really funny to listen to sometimes when he talks about it. But we hope to see you there. Thank you so much, Antonio. Thank you for being here with us. And thank yeah, you. We'd like to see you next time. As I've always said, I'm Tom Ellsworth, the BizDoc, and I hope I left you better than I found you. 
Absolutely.